This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. In football, you have to play hurt. If someone goes down, it's next man up. Here's the Talk of Fame Network, though. When Clark Judge goes down, as he is this week, there's no next man up. There's just Hall of Fame football writer Rick Gosselin and myself, Ron Borges, to pick up the ball and run with it. And that's what we'll be doing today. We've got some great guests joining us to help us out, including Hall of Famer Mike Haynes and best-selling author Jeff Perlman, whose latest book chronicles Donald Trump's chaotic football league, the USFL. They may have only been worth a buck, but they were fun to, to watch and even more fun to read about. Goose, is Clark on the DL but do we have to put him on season-long IR? Well, Ron, baseball has a 15-day disabled list. We have a 15-hour disabled list. I think Clark was suffering withdrawal because his Patriots didn't play Sunday, and then his Yankees got drilled Monday. <laughs> I love that Monday night game. That was very good. <laughs> uh, for a couple of weeks, a lot of people were putting the uh, Patriots on the pup list after playing like dogs and back-to-back losses to the Jacksonville Jaguars and Detroit Lions, Goose. Uh, this seems to be an almost annual woe is them prediction that never works out. Uh, now they've won two games in five days over uh, the Miami Dolphins and Indianapolis Colts, and they'll have 10 days to prepare for Sunday night showdown against the undefeated Chiefs at home. Are they back or didn't they ever leave? Well, they're always there, but they didn't do a very good job of it. next man up at wide receiver <laughs> during the opening month of September. But with uh, Josh Gordon now on the field and Julian Edelman back from his month-long NFL suspension, I think Tom Brady once again has his full complement of weapons. You know, teams can no longer put three defenders on Rob Gronkowski. Now the Brady, Brady's, Brady has all his weapons. They're back. In those two losses, New England trailed badly in the first half, 24-3 and 13-0. Since then, they led Miami 24-0 and the Colts 24-3 at halftime. Which one's the real Patriots? Now are there struggles on third down, both on offense and defense behind them, with the return of Edelman, the arrival of Josh Gordon, and the rise of rookie Sony Michelle at running back? Or do they still have to worry about that defense? Uh, around the home field is a wonderful thing. The Patriots had it against the Dolphins and Colts, and they'll have it again against the Chiefs this coming weekend, so there's nothing that ailed the Patriots that a little home cooking couldn't cure. Love that home cooking, and that's what we have here at Talk of Fame Network. Time will tell if the Patriots have righted their ship or not. We, we're out of time for this segment. We're going to take a break, pay some bills, and when we come back, we'll discuss the meaning of must-win games and if any will be played this weekend. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we get into this week's hot topics, I'd like to acknowledge the passing on Monday of an NFL pioneer. In 1949, George Talaferro became the first African-American drafted by the NFL when the Chicago Bears took him on the 13th round. By then, he'd become a star running back at Indiana University on the only undefeated Hoosier team in its history, before or since. He'd also faced crushing racism. He was not allowed to swim in the university pool. He was not allowed to live in university dormitories. He was not allowed to eat in the school's cafeterias. As he once put it, I couldn't do anything on campus but go to class and play football. At one point, he called his father, Robert, who worked in Gary, Indiana, in a steel plant all his life, and he told him he was coming home to join him. His dad said, well, then you should cross your arms across your chest and lie down and die because I never had the kind of opportunities that you're going to have. His dad was right. 
George Talaferro never played for the Bears because he'd already signed a contract with the Los Angeles Dons of the All-American Football Conference, which was more inviting to black players in those days. He went on to play seven years of pro ball, six in the NFL. He was named to three Pro Bowls and later earned advanced degrees and became dean of students at Morgan State and later a professor back at his alma mater, Indiana. George Talaferro was 91. Goose, that's a guy with a Hall of Fame story and maybe a Hall of Fame-worthy career at a time when few African-Americans were getting that opportunity. You know, Ron Talaferro almost fits into the contributor category because of his trailblazing efforts for his race. You know, Jackie Robinson opened the door for African-Americans in baseball in 1947. He proved that Jacks could com- blacks could complete, would compete with whites. He went to the All-Star game for the first time in 1949, and that's the year Talaferro was drafted. Robinson, Talaferro, Marion Motley, Larry Doby, those are the guys who fought the uphill battles for dignity and respect. George Talaferro, rest in peace. Great player, great man. Speaking of resting in peace, Goose, entering the sixth week of the season, there are already teams being told that they are facing must-win situations if they have any hope of making the playoffs this week. Is it too early for must-win games? Actually, Ron, I think we're about a week late with this segment. I, I, I thought last week both teams were in must-win situations in the game between Minnesota and Philadelphia. Both were underachieving after joint appearance in the NFC title game a year ago. I thought Falcons-Steelers was another must-win game for a pair of underachieving teams with Super Bowl aspirations. I thought even Dallas-Houston was a must-win for both teams, and yet another game of colossal underachievement. But when you play 16 games a season, I guess they can all be described as must-games. Who's in the most difficult position? The 1-4 Falcons, who've lost three straight playing at home this weekend against division rival Tampa, which is also struggling and lost two in a row. Or the reeling Raiders. Oakland's 1-4 under John Gruden and is already four games behind the undefeated Chiefs in the AFC West. Well, the Falcons, the Falcons are in the most difficult position because they expected to return to the Super Bowl this season. A fifth loss all but dooms them to mediocrity because they have an injury-riddled defense that can no longer stop anyone. Atlanta has allowed the most points in the NFL this season. That's never been a winning ticket. I didn't think the Raiders would ever be in a must-win situation in 2018. What? And I wasn't a fan of the Gruden experiment, and I had them ticketed for last place in the West and a high draft pick in 2019. So none of these games really matter for the Raiders, whether it's home against Seattle or on the road against Kansas City. you got to understand, Ron. These aren't your Raiders anymore. Oh, my God. i got to sit down and get a cold cup of water or something. This is <laughs> Gooseman killing me. Well, what about the Pittsburgh Steelers? They seem to have righted their ship, a bit anyway, uh, but they're still without Le'Veon Bell, and at 2-2-1 and are visiting the division-leading Cincinnati Bengals, who are 4-1. and If Pittsburgh loses, it falls two and a half games behind Cincinnati with a loss to them on the books. Is this a must-win for Mike Tomlin's Steelers? You know, I think this would be a must-win if the roles were reversed. You know, the Bengals wouldn't want to fall two and a half games back to the Steelers because Pittsburgh has a history of success in division titles. I think most of us remain suspect about the Bengals. Even at 5-1, and one, I don't think any of us want to pencil Cincinnati into a first-round bye. I think most of us expect the pendulum to swing back the other way at some point in the second half of the season, allowing both Baltimore and Pittsburgh back into the race. But a loss to Cincinnati does complicate matters for the Steelers because that's a one-dimensional team without Le'Veon Bell. Spartan. Jeez, he's showing no love to Marvin Lewis, my friend. All right, how it goes. Well, I wonder, too, about the Denver Broncos. They're 2-3. and three. They've lost three straight, going into a home game against the undefeated Rams. If the Chiefs find a way to beat New England on the road and Denver loses at home to L.A., Denver would be four out with 10 to play. Who on earth can recover from that? 
Ron, I like the Raiders. I didn't put much stock in Denver's chances this season. I thought if Case Keenum came in and played like he did in Minnesota last season, which is not turn the ball over, the Broncos could be a 500 team. But Keenum has already turned, thrown as many interceptions through five games as he did all of last season in quarterbacking the Vikings to the NFC title game. The days of must-win in Denver ended with Peyton Manning's retirement. Are you telling me that Case Keenum has crashed to earth, Gooseman? Not John Elway. <laughs> He's certainly not. He may not even be John McCormick. Uh, is the idea of must-wins overrated this early in the season uh, overall? We've seen teams write their ships later uh, than this and make the playoffs, and we've seen other teams start off gangbusters and then go bust. So how must-win is any of these games this weekend, and which one, in your mind, is the closest to a season-sealing game if they lose? Well, I, I do think there are such things as must-win games for the talented teams with expectations. You know, the underachieving likes of Atlanta, Minnesota, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh find themselves in must-win situations not just about every week. And they should be doing better than they are. You can't dig any deeper, a uh, hole any deeper for yourself than they are already in now. But the must-win games for the Buffaloes, Denver's, Oakland, and San Francisco, forget about it. They don't exist. What's it's called parody, Ron. It's called parody. Yeah, parody. They love parody. I used to call that mediocrity. Uh, <laughs> what do you make of the Vikings? I mean, last year they, you know, they were going gangbusters on defense. God, I mean, it was it was tremendous. Uh, this year, the, the area that you would think they would have been strongest at that seems shaky to me. What do you make of them? Well, I think they're a much better offensive team for one. You know, getting Cousins, they can now take advantage of those two wide receivers, and they've got two great wide receivers. You know, they're they're going to score points, but. What's puzzling is the defense. I mean, they've made, that was the number one ranked defense last year. A lot of the fewest points used, fewest yards. Now teams are regularly putting up 20, 30, even 40 points against them. That's the problem. And I know Mike Zimmer, he'll get it fixed. Keep an eye on Minnesota. Unfortunately, we don't have any must-win situations at the Tiger Fame Network. But we do have a mountain of information available to us from our resident Dr. Data. What numbers are you going to throw at us this week, Goose? <laughs> well... If football isn't careful, it's going to become baseball with its overdose of cybermetrics. In baseball, a pitcher can qualify for a quality start by lasting a mere six innings. <laughs> when he throws his 100th pitch, the managers start looking toward the bullpen. The goal is to preserve arms, save them for another day, for another season. The NFL may need to adopt that similar philosophy. The NFL record for passes in a single season is 727 by Detroit's Matthew Stafford in 2012. He's the only quarterback ever to throw 700 passes in a single season. But there are three quarterbacks this season on a pace to throw 700 passes, including Andrew Luck of the Colts. He's on a pace to shatter Stafford's record with 784 passes. Baltimore's Joe Flacco is on a pace to throw 726 passes. The Minnesota's Kirk Cousins, 723. This is clearly the season the NFL has decided to go all in on offense. The rules, and in particular, the new interpretation of the roughing the passer rule, encourage it. Last season, there were 15 games that quarterbacks threw 50 or more passes, including one game that a quarterback threw 60 passes. But through just five weeks of this season, there have already been 17 games that a quarterback has thrown 50 or more passes, including three games and a quarterback has thrown 60 times. Jeez. Luck has three of the 50 pass games himself. And this is a quarterback who missed the entire 27th season because of an injury to his throwing shoulder. 
two weekends ago, the Rams and Vikings combined to throw 83 passes in a game for 887 yards and eight touchdowns. Last weekend, Jaguars and Chiefs combined to throw 99 passes. Look for this passing assault on defenses in the record book to continue until the temperatures cool or some arms start falling off these quarterbacks, whichever comes first. Well, i got to tell you, Goose, my old soup bone is tired just thinking about what you just said. So <laughs> let's take a break. When we come back, we'll speak with Hall of Fame voter Ed Bouchette about his favorite subject, deserving Pittsburgh Steelers, ignored by you, the voters, Goose Man and me, of the Hall of Fame. You're listening our, to the Talk of Fame of Network. Favorites. That's one of our favorites. Exactly right. More Steelers and more Raiders. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our first guest today is Ed Bouchette, who first covered a Steelers game in 1974, and they've been seldom out of his sight ever since. Ed worked at a number of smaller papers, starting out uh, before landing at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in 1983, and his first football beat was not the Steelers. It was the one-year existence of the Pittsburgh Maulers of the USFL. When that team folded, Ed moved on to the Steelers and uh, is now entering, I believe, his 34th season covering the team for the Post-Gazette. He's written two books on the Steelers in addition to his extensive newspaper coverage. He was a uh, 2014 winner of the McCann Award, entering the Pro Football Hall of Fame alongside my sidekick, Rick Goslin. He's also a longtime Hall of Fame voter, and he's here today to explain to us why even more Steelers should be in the Hall of Fame. Welcome back, Ed. Thanks, Ron. That was a nice introduction. <laughs> well, I'm just telling the trouble to tell you know. Uh, of the Steelers not in the Hall, which one do you feel is the most egregious? You know, some people say Elsie Greenwood. Other people think other guys. Who do you think is stands out the most? Well, we're eliminating the modern guys, right? Um, like you can, the Alan Vanica. No, you could throw him in. I mean, if you think he's... Well, I mean, Vanica, I think, is uh, maybe the most deserving right now because he... Uh, um, he's all decade. He's made a, I don't know how his stats right in front of me right now. I think it's six all pro teams or five all pro teams and one second all pro when he, uh, took one for the team and moved from guard to tackle to help them out when they had injuries. And, and that's the only reason he was second team that year. Um, I think he has 11 Pro Bowls, uh, just all decade. I think I said that. And he's been a finalist now for three years, so uh, I think he's going to get in. Um, but there's three guys, three older guys, seniors, if you will, now, who I think are deserving. And um, it's hard to pick one, but I'd go with L.C. Uh, Greenwood, probably number one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that some of the greatest uh, defensive lines in history – uh, almost all of them have at least two in the Hall of Fame. The Steelers have one, and it's Joe Green. And Elsie Greenwood, to me, really deserves to be in there. Um, he was a finalist twice um, and, and didn't make it in, in the early part of this century. You know, he's an he, all-decade team of the 1970s. He was a um, six-time Pro Bowler, two first-team All-Pros. And... <clears throat> Just was, I mean, he doesn't have the sack totals that you know you look at. Uh, I think he had seventy three somewhere around there, but um, it was disruptive. I mean, he had that slap. He would when you could do it, slap the helmet uh, of the tackle, and uh, he was an end in the four man line. And um, uh, he he's one of them. He would be at the top of my list. Although 
Andy Russell is one that um, there's some people here making a big push on, um, and he's another one because uh, he, you know, he played for them in '63 as a rookie, and then went into the service for two years, um, and then came back and, and, and played in '66, and actually played through '76. Again, has a lot of stats. Uh, you know, uh, seven-time Pro Bowler uh, on teams that uh, some of them weren't very good. Uh, 1968 being terrible. That he made the Pro Bowl that year. It's hard to do on those bad teams. Sure. And even 1970 and '71, Chuck Knoll's teams weren't that good. They had losing records. So, um, you know, he's uh, the, the problem for him is. <laughs> He started with two other linebackers in that 4-3 defense, and they're both in the Hall of Fame, Lambert and him. And it's going to be hard, I would think, to convince people that all three should be in there. And I have one more, Donnie Shell, if you want me to keep going. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, Go ahead. His name comes uh, up a lot. Uh, Yeah, he was a finalist one year, Ron, and, uh, you know, 51 interceptions for a strong safety. I don't know that there's any – other strong safety that has that many. Uh, that's a lot for a strong safety. And he, again, was disruptive. He made it as an undrafted uh, free agent rookie in 74 at a time when, uh, would they have 17 rounds? or yeah, I think yeah. it was 17 rounds. 17, that year. Really, yeah. And, um, you know, he, uh, he was a special teams captain, cut his teeth on special teams, and then became their starting strong safety. And, um, you know, those 51 interceptions, I think, speak for themselves. He wasn't a free safety. He wasn't back there just gathering the balls uh, that uh, that front four and those three linebackers forced quarterbacks into throwing bad. You know, he was up there, too, and um, um, returned two for touchdowns. Uh, and he he made five Pro Bowls. So those are those are the three besides Alan Fanica that, that I think – are most deserving. Do you think Shell is a, maybe a, a victim? Because his, his is the name that comes up the least, even though I think he's deserving. Uh, but do you think he's a, a a victim of just so many of the guys from that Steeler team going in there that whether consciously or unconsciously voters start to say, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to put everybody in there? You know how? Uh, you know, Bro, Ron, I had one voter tell me when John Stallworth went in, and I think he was the last one from those uh, 70s Steelers. He said, don't think we're not going to put the safety in, too. Wow. So I think, yeah, I think there is some people who were tired of putting all those Steelers in. But maybe like Kramer, who just went in as a senior not long ago uh, yep. for the Green Bay Packers. I think, you know, his his first time around, his first time around as a senior was shot down. And I think part of the reason was, are we going to put the whole Packer line in? Right. Well, if you're deserving, you're deserving. It's, it's a reason... <clears throat> There's a reason those teams, Packers, Steelers, 49ers, won so many games. They had great players. Right. Ed, explain this to me. The Oakland Raiders in the 70s went to one Super Bowl and had 11 Hall of Fame players. And deservedly so. Nine. <laughs> How does that happen? You know, Rick, I, I don't know. I do know. Um, what would you say? They won one Super Bowl? Is that all they, they went won? To one. They went to one and won it. Yeah, and then they went early in the 80s and won it, right? 83, was it? Whatever. They went twice in the 80s. They had great players. They really did. Maybe John Madden shouldn't be in there. Maybe he didn't coach him up enough. There you go, brother. uh, I was there. You're exactly (laughs) right. I thought thought they had great players. I really did. 
and I, you know, I didn't vote for a lot of those guys because, like, the seventies uh, was before my, t- you know, I didn't get on here till uh, I think it was ninety five. Okay, let me throw another name at you, and this is a contributor, Bill Nunn. Would the Steelers have been the Steelers of the seventies without Bill Nunn? No, I mean those. Two of those players I just told you about came from small black colleges that were not being uh, – L.C. Garland was a late pick. I forget what number he was. Um, and Donnie Shell was in South Carolina State. And uh, Arkansas AM&N is where uh, L.C. went. And Bill Nunn was a newspaper guy for the Pittsburgh Courier, which had a national – uh, publication at the time. They had a local edition and a national edition. He was sports editor, and he put out the all-black college teams. He knew everyone at those schools, the coaches, the players, and the Steelers were smart enough to say when Chuck Noll, I, I think it was when Chuck Noll came in, maybe a, a year before, um, they were smart enough to recognize this and say, wow, this guy can help us. So he went to work for him part-time as a scout, then full-time shortly thereafter. And he mined those colleges and found those players that nobody else was finding. I think the only other team maybe that was deep into it at the time may have been the Kansas City Chiefs. Right. right. They had Lloyd Wells, who was the same kind of guy. Right, right. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're exactly. Yeah, he, he really um, – he's a guy – who eventually could, with his contributor status now, I think that he could get some support as a um, uh, as a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I like him a lot. Now I'm going to ask you about a guy whose name, I don't know if, if it uh, ever comes up uh, or will anymore, but I certainly saw a lot of them, uh, and that's Greg Lloyd. You know, he's one of the Steelers' great linebackers. He was named to three All-Pro teams three years in a row. He went to five Pro Bowls. Um, is he the Hall of Famer or a Hall of Very Good? You know, people here think he's a Hall of Famer, um, but he he kind of flamed out at the end. Uh, he got he, he he was injured, got a bad injury, got staph infection, um, and you know he he may be, but he actually did it a longer time. I was going to compare him to, on defense to Terrell Davis, you know, where he was just a a, a super player for a short time. But um, I don't think he's going to make it. He never gets much um, uh, support in, in the voting, uh, Rick and Ron. But, um, he, you know, he teamed with Kevin Green in those Blitzburg years, and that's another thing. Um, you know, they never won a Super Bowl, those teams. And, uh, you know, so his he probably didn't get the kind of recognition maybe he would have if they had. Right. I'll tell you this much. Compared to Terrell Davis, he ran the marathon, Greg Lloyd. I mean, <laughs> I mean, he had five great seasons, and then yeah, say injuries yeah. got him. But I mean, if you right. saw him play as you did, you know that guy was no, he was great. Man. He, was, he had an attitude too. I mean, he 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 was vicious. Yeah, he was he was all he was almost James Harrison, which is another guy if you want to throw out there. You know, mm-hmm. a late bloomer who uh, has the greatest defensive play in Super Bowl history and um, 2008 NFL Player of the Year. Ton of sacks. He holds the Steelers' sack record. Um, but again, uh, as I said, late bloomer, so he didn't have a whole lot of those seasons. Right, right. Does he ever get in? What's that, Does Goose? He ever get in? Does he? Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to put the kibosh on a guy. I'm sitting here right now. I don't think he's going to get the support. 
Right. Well, the Steelers may never be out of Hall of Fame candidates, but we're out of time, Ed. Uh, thanks again. Next yeah, time that we have puts you back. the burden on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we got to talk to about Bill Cowher the next time we have you back. A... All, these, all, these, all these years doing it, and I've had one year in which I didn't have a candidate. <laughs> I, I just get the same candidates over and over, but there you go. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, thanks for the rundown. Uh, it sounds like you'll be busy uh, making presentations for, uh, for quite some time. Uh, so we appreciate your time, Ed, and we'll have you back. All right, Ron and Rick, thanks for having me on. Thank, Thank you. Good. When we come back, we'll sit down with best-selling author Jeff Perlman, whose newest book focuses on perhaps the wackiest league ever, Donald Trump's USFL. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest is New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman, who has written books on Brett Favre, Walter Payton, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, the Showtime at Los Angeles Lakers, and the Jerry Jones Dallas Cowboys. But we've invited Jack, Jeff to visit with us today about his new book on the USFL, Football for a Buck. It's subtitled, the crazy rise and crazier demise, and it's all of that with a healthy dose of hilarity mixed in. Jeff, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. It's like to be here. Jeff, I covered the first USFL title game in 1983, and I always thought there was a place in the sporting calendar for spring football. So I was anxious to read your book and knocked it out over the weekend. First off, I thought it was a terrific read. On every other page, it seemed to be something to chuckle about. But the one common thread throughout the book was Donald Trump and his ego. Had Trump not purchased the generals and stayed away from pro football, would the USFL had a chance? I think so. And, you know, Steve Young recently, I was texting him about something, and he's like, I think he's actually a pretty conservative guy, but he was like, man, if Trump didn't get involved, I think that league still exists as a spring league. And I don't know if it does or not, but the, the idea of the USFL is a great spring football, slow growth, regional drafts. I just think it was a great idea. They got corrupted by someone who was after his own sort of greedy interests. I, I, I think it could have lasted a lot longer, certainly. And, and they got named players, too. Oh, I mean, come on. They got, I mean, the bat, Herschel Walker, the whole, the whole genesis for me is I'm a little younger than you. And I, I remember in 1983 going to my library in Mayo Pack, New York, and seeing the issue of Sports Illustrated with Herschel Walker on the cover under the headline, Hitting Pay Dirt. And it's him in the New Jersey General's uniform. And you open it up, and there's these 12 helmets, these awesome helmets. And I just think it was exciting and, you know, electrifying, and they were inventive. And, you, I mean, the names from Herschel to Steve Young and Jim Kelly to Reggie White and Sam Mills, it really was in many ways a who's who of 80s football. Right. You better hope Donald Trump doesn't hear you say that about him. He'll be hollering fake news about you. He'll be... <laughs> Oh, I want that so badly. Yeah, good for that. sales. All I want. Oh, my God. I want a tweet from him so badly, I can't even tell you. <laughs> well, you mentioned John Barron a couple of times as a deep throat type source uh, on USL, uh, USFL Matters. Uh, did you ever get a call from John Barron? I, <laughs> I, never, I never did, but it's so funny. Like, I just did this the other day. If you do, like, a, a newspapers.com or a Nexus search for John Barron, in particular, when the general signed Doug Flutie, there are all these quotes from John Barron, Donald Trump's representative, um, 
talking about how Mr. Trump is excited and this is a great thing for the league and blah, blah, blah. As you guys know, and many people know, Don Barron was, was just Donald Trump disguising his voice, which is <laughs> the best thing. I love it. I just, the irony of it all is so ridiculous. The irony of a guy who keeps screaming fake news using an invented publicist. <laughs> or, I mean, you saw in the book, the idea he signs Doug Flutie to the New Jersey Generals in 1985 to the largest contract in pro football uh, history, tells his partners of the Generals, don't worry, the other owners are going to pay for his contract. <laughs> and then he writes a letter to the other owners saying, I'm doing this great favor for you, and I expect you to pay part of his contract. And the other owners collectively giving him the middle finger. I always think Doug Flutie was the Mexico wall before the Mexico wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. This is what I was thinking. Wow. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> Jeff, you made the point. Actually, the USFL's executive director, Steve Earhart, made the point that if the USFL's antitrust suit should have been tried in Houston, not New York, do you believe history would have been rewritten if the case had been tried in Texas? I think there were a few things that went wrong with the case. Number one, definitely having in New York uh, a place that was not very sympathetic, A, to the USFL, B, to Donald Trump, um, was not a good idea. I also think the USFL's three key witnesses in that lawsuit were a drunk Howard Cosell, <laughs> a out-of-his-mind Al Davis, who hated Pete Rozelle, and then the worst was their, their other star, their third star witness, was Donald Trump. And I interviewed one of the jurors, and she said, you know, he was, she recalled him stand, being on the witness stand, staring down the jurors, trying to intimidate them. She had this very vividly recollection of that, and that he was unbelievable and bombastic and arrogant. And, you know, the, uh, the attorney for the NFL was a guy named Frank Rothman, and he said openly afterwards, Donald Trump was a gift to us because we needed a bad guy. Because if you going into that trial, we were Goliath and the USFL was David and we were not a sympathetic group. And he said Donald Trump made the USFL the evil, arrogant, lying empire. And, you know, Trump on the stand said Pete Rozelle promised him an NFL franchise if he killed the USFL. And it just wasn't believable. Like, it just wasn't believable. And that was a killer to the USFL. <laughs> He was just lying. He just lied. He lied under oath. He was lying under oath on the stand. There's no doubt about that. I'm shocked to hear that. Shocked. That yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, Trump, Trump, of course, wasn't the only owner with an ego in the USFL. They had a hilarious blow-by-blow account in your book of Steve Young's contract negotiations with the L.A. Express involving uh, Agent Lee Steinberg and the Express owner William Oldenburg. Uh, did the USFL ever seriously vet any of these owners, or did they just cash? <laughs> They did early on. And then um, Oldenburg wasn't the original owner of the uh, Express. He bought the team uh, from two cable TV executives after the first season. And he, he seemed like he had a lot of money. He was an SNL guy. Uh, his bank statements were huge. You know, he had a net worth in the you know, high millions. And then he lost it all really quickly. And the other thing is he was just absolutely insane. Like there was one owner's meeting where in the middle of the meeting, he literally pulled his pants down and said, if you want to dance with the king, you got to know how to boogie-woogie. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. But this was in an owner's meeting at a USFL. And he brought Wayne Newton, was his good buddy. So he brought Wayne Newton to an owner's meeting and said, we're going to have... So they played in the L.A. Coliseum, and their average attendance was probably about 8,000 in a 96,000-seat stadium. And he said to the other owners, we're going to open the 84 season, and Wayne Newton's going to hold a concert. We're going to sell that thing out. I mean... I love Wayne. I love Donker Shane as much as the next guy, but Wayne Newton isn't selling out the LA Coliseum. I got about twenty thousand back. Here. Are, are you surprised that um, Steinberg and Young didn't at end point walk away from negotiation the way Oldberg was treating them? Yeah, actually, I was. And, and the way they explained it, I mean, you know, Young. So this was eighty four going into the eighty four season. 
And Young was going to be the number one draft pick of the Cincinnati Bengals. He had no desire to go to Cincinnati, Ohio. Absolutely none. Zero. And, I mean, the USFL gave him a choice of what team do you want to go to. If you look at the 84 draft, Steve Young was drafted 10th. It was all set up. You know, um, he, was the, he was the best player in that draft, but that he wanted to go to L.A. So the, the, the USFL gave him a lot of sort of options, uh, and the money they thought was real. So he thought Bill Oldenburg was crazy. Bill Oldenburg was a drunk. He was way off the reservation. But he was offering him $40 million um, and the chance to play in L.A., and you also have to remember real quick, the L.A. Express were coached by John Hadle, a great quarterback, and their offensive coordinator was Sid Gilman, the sort of godfather of the modern passing game. So if you're Steve Young and you can play in warm weather under those two guys or go to Cincinnati and back up Ken Anderson, it wasn't that hard of a choice. Yeah, the $40 million probably helped too, I would think. <laughs> he, got, he only got about eight of it, though. He ended up getting a very small amount of it. Uh, Jeff, easily the most interesting character in your book was defensive end Greg Fields, who was nicknamed Big Paper. But the best anecdote in your book may have been the day Big Paper was cut by head coach John Hadle of the Express. Do you think Fields could have pulled off that type of exit against Don Shula or Bill Belichick? No, but here's the crazy So Greg Fields is the best character in any book ever written about anything. He's, uh, he's the Jesus of my book, right? So, And I'm Jewish, so I can say that. So um, he was... Uh, he was drafted by the, I mean, he was a free agent rookie with the Colts in 1980, uh, cut after his first year, goes to the Atlanta Falcons, is in camp with the Falcons, um, gets cut, but refuses to leave the team facility, like literally does not leave his hotel room. And they have to bring an armed security guard to get him out. So that's it for him in the NFL. But of course, the LA Express would take anybody. So, I mean, the USFL, he signs with the Express, Hadel calls him in to cut him uh, during camp in 84. And midway through is, you know, Greg, we really appreciate you being here. Fields reaches across the table and punches him in the face. <laughs> he, he starts calling death threats. I'm going to have to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Well, he ends up, he starts calling death threats to the team, to the coach, to the defense coordinator. And they hire Liberace's bodyguard away from Liberace to come to L.A. and protect John Hadle. And he's tracking Greg Fields' car. And he has a thing on his phone. And he told me Greg Fields is showing up at events with a gun in his trunk. Um, and they let the USFL know this is going on. And the beauty of the USFL is, yes, he's a homicidal maniac, but the San Antonio gunslingers need, are in bad need, dire need of defensive line help. So they actually bring him in and sign him. And he goes to the gunslingers. And the owner there, another real gem named Clint Mangus, he, um, he stops paying players. Well, one day Greg Fields follows him home. And he has a baseball bat in his trunk. And he follows Mangus home. And when Mangus gets out of the car, he says, I know where you live. I know you have money. You better get me some. And Mangus says, wait here. Goes inside, comes back out 10 minutes later with $17,000 in cash and says, are we good? And he's like, yeah, we're good. And Greg Field is never seen again in the USFL. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I love it. Uh, if you could have covered one USFL team for one uh, season, would it have been the Gunslingers in 1984 or someone else? It got to be the gunslingers. Let me just say why. I'll give you a quick. Besides Greg Fields, okay, their owner was crazy. Their coach was. This sounds mean. I don't mean it to be, but 30 years ago, early onset dementia, only had seven fingers because he lost three in a lawnmower accident, and coached from the stand, sitting next to his wife because he thought he had a better view. They, their their punter was a guy named, for briefly, was a guy named Buddy Roberts. He was the owner's ranch hand. He hadn't played football in 17 years since getting out of Freer High School, but the owner really believed he would be a good punter. They, um, they played on, their field was like this, 
you know, paper thin AstroTurf and they were so cheap. They used industrial spray paint to spray the field. So when players would slide, they would get these big turf burns and they'd be mixed with industrial paint charred in. So you would regularly hear visiting players in the showers screaming as the hot water hit their skin burns slash paint burns. It was just one amazing. The, um, Rick Neuheisel was their quarterback and he told me one day one of the team officials early on in Gunslinger's history said to them, what should we do about providing uniforms for the visiting teams? The sad thing is the interview's going so short. We don't even get into George Allen. He's a piece of work himself. But let me finish with this. What's the legacy of the USFL? Man. I mean, on one hand, it doesn't have a legacy. I mean, I hate to say that. On a, if you talk to anyone under the age of whatever, 35, and you tell them, you know, or I tell them, oh, yeah, I have a USFL book, they give you these kind of blank stares, which is a little bit disappointing. But I would say, uh, in a different way, uh, the legacy would be the two-point conversion, the coach's challenge, the run-and-shoot offense, um, almost 200 players going from the USFL to the NFL, four Hall of Famers, Reggie White, Jim Kelly, Steve Young, Gary Zimmerman. Um, and I think the biggest one for players now, even though they don't know it, is you know when Le'Veon Bell signs whatever contract he's going to sign with Pittsburgh for gazillions of dollars, well, the salary blew up when the USFL came along and suddenly the NFL had to, was challenged for players. So a lot of these guys really have the USFL to thank. They don't know it, but they have the USFL to thank for the millions and millions they make nowadays. Two-word answer. Who was the favorite, the favorite person you dealt with in this book? I mean, I love Steve Young. I love Doug Williams. I love Jim Kelly. You know, they're guys who... Um, this is guy... Like, what's cool is you talk to NFL guys who have these huge successes in the NFL... And they still love talking about the USFL more. Because I would say, like, to these guys, the USFL is like a really frightening plane trip to Hawaii. Like, you think you're going <laughs> to die in this plane trip. And you're in the worst turbulence ever, and your plane is hit by lightning, and you all think you're going to die. But then you land, and you're in Hawaii. And <laughs> that's what the USFL really was to them. It was this great, crazy, chaotic, nightmarish joyride of football. Hey, we'd like to thank you, Jeff, for joining us today and wish you the best of luck in the sales of the book. Football for a Buck is a highly entertaining read. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. The clock on the DL, we're one man down today, but that doesn't mean the whistle isn't going to blow on the two-minute drill. Johnny Unitas may have invented it, but Talk of Fame Network is advancing the ball, or at least that's what we hope. That's the two minute warning. There's that whistle, so let's get to it, Goose. Best long distance operator: Matt Prater, Tom Dempsey, or Graham Gano. I'll take the guy who has kicked an NFL record 56 50-yard field goals. Your guy, Sebastian Janikowski. <laughs> Good one, but what about Tom Dempsey? Did it without thin air, without half a foot? It's got to count for something, big man. A Panthers coach, Ron Rivera, sent his special teams out first for pregame rather than Cam Newton, and Gano responded with a 63-yard game-winning kick three hours later. Was Ron Rivera a mind reader or a foot doctor? Oh, maybe Ron trusts his kicker more than he trusts his quarterback. I think he's a genius because everybody's a genius in the NFL these days. I love geniuses. Packer kicker Mason Crosby missed four field goals on a PAT Sunday, costing Green Bay 13 points and a victory. Was he watching old Rolf Bernerska tapes all week long? Well, he certainly wasn't watching Adam Vinatieri tapes, who doesn't miss four kicks in a season. 
plus a day. <laughs> Whatever he was uh, uh, watching, I know this goose man. You better invest in a compass or a moving van. Will a 500 team win the staggering NFC East this year? Yes, sir. Ride the defending Super Bowl champions to a winning season and division title. These four slappies may never even get the 500. This is terrible. Rams coach uh, Sean McVay says his offense convinced him to go for it on fourth and one from his own 42 while clinging to a two-point lead with less than two minutes to play Sunday. Was that democracy, idiocy, or prescient thinking? That was merely listening to the playmakers in the NFL's most explosive and best offense. Four rookie quarterbacks started Sunday, and for the first time in Super Bowl era, they went 4-0. Does this prove playing quarterback today is easier than it was in Johnny Unitas' day? No, it proves defenses are no longer allowed to play defense in this league. <laughs> there you go. Jets rookie quarterback Sam Darnold stands 6'3", yet Denver tipped four of his passes on Sunday. Does he need a pair of elevator shoes to elevate his throws? No, he needs to hand the ball off to Isaiah Crowell more. The Falcons are 1-4, allowed six sacks and losing to the Steelers Sunday and are giving up 32.6 points a game. Are they facing the must-win game six weeks into the season next Sunday, and will they win it? Last week was a must-win game. Every week is going to be a must-win for the fading Dirty Birds. That's the end of the Well, it's halftime for our show. The Talk of Fate Network will be back after these this break, ready to throw deep and score again. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network for our second hour. We started our first hour by discussing the resurrection of the AFC champion Patriots these last weeks. We'll start the second hour by discussing the collapse of the team that defeated the Patriots in that Super Bowl, the Philadelphia Eagles. Five weeks into the season, the NFL's defending champions find themselves two and three. On paper, the Eagles are supposed to be even better than the team that walked off the field after the Super Bowl. Their Pro Bowl left tackle was back. Their Pro Bowl kick returner was back. Their middle linebacker was back. Their MVP candidate quarterback was back. None played in the Super Bowl. They also added a Pro Bowl pass rusher, Michael Bennett, and claimed the best pass-catching tight end in the draft, Dallas Goddard. Yet the Eagles find themselves... Um, with a worse record at this point of the season than the Cleveland Browns. So, Ron, did you see that coming? Did anyone see this coming? Uh, I don't think anybody did. I certainly didn't. Uh, you know, it's just hard to believe that this shaky on on, on offense with all those uh, parts coming back. But there is a long history of defending Super Bowl champions struggling the next season. It's a natural tendency to become a bit complacent uh, after achieving what most of these players and, and coaches had as a lifelong goal. Uh, it's time to have your back slap, not to slap your backside under a rack of weights on a beautiful spring day. So you ease up. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened here, but when's the last time Doug Pedersen wrote a book before this season? <laughs> no, I'm not suggesting that that means he wasn't focused. I'm just saying it's hard to maintain the level of intensity necessary to win a championship when you just won one. Oh, okay, the Eagles have two quarterbacks who couldn't lose last season in Carson Wentz and Super Bowl MVP Nick Foles. Now they can't win. Foles has lost one game. Wentz has lost two. Quarterback is supposed to be a strength of this team, yet five weeks in, 
Bowles and Wentz have as many turnovers as touchdown passes. Is quarterback an issue here? I don't think it is, but I do think what the issue is is maybe a case of trying too hard by both of them. I think Foles was trying to prove he wasn't a one-year wonder, and Wentz is trying to prove he's fully recovered from the injury that cut his season short last year and made Foles a folk hero in Philadelphia. I think both probably have to follow uh, Aaron Rodgers' advice a couple years ago. Relax and just play. Just play the game. Right, the Eagles are at the Giants this weekend, and, and if this trip doesn't get them back to 500, it's going to be a long season in Philadelphia. So stay tuned. We've got former USFL star Irv Eatman and Pro Football Hall of Famer Mike Haynes coming up in this hour. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network for our second hour. The value of kickers was underscored last week by kicks that were made and those that weren't made. Let's start with a kick that was made. That 63-yarder by Graham Gano at the gun that left the Carolina Panthers to a 33-31 victory over the New York Giants. Ron, how and when did the long field goal become so commonplace? There have already been six field goals in excess of 55 yards this season. Well, I, I don't exactly know when it all started, but it's to me it's a combination of you know vastly improved fields. So many of them are indoors. Uh, added time in, in coaching that's going into special teams that didn't exist. Uh, there's so much more emphasis on that area of the game uh, uh, you can remember when you and I started, I mean, most teams didn't even have special teams coach. It was just some guys who sort of wander over there. And, uh, uh, you know, but when I was around the Raiders in the in the 70s, I used to play cards in the locker room during practice with the kicker and the punter. During practice. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Uh, was, was there a Hall of Famer in that group? There was a Hall of Famer in that group. He wasn't that good at card play, which was very good. Uh, <laughs> but now this kicking, it's like, you know, it's like Tiger Woods talking about his swing. You know, it's it's science more than anything else. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Okay, there's been only one field goal in NFL history longer than his 63-yarder, and that was Matt Prater's 64-yarder for the Broncos in that thin, rocky mountain air of Denver. In the year 2000, there were 68 field goal attempts of 50 yards or longer. Last season, there were 153 such attempts. How soon before we see a 65-yard field goal or even a 70-yard field goal? Wow. Uh, well, you know, human limits are always fascinating to ponder. I mean, I remember as a kid, uh, the four-minute mile was considered near, uh, near impossibility. And now there's marathon runners right in, running four-minute miles at a clip, you know, more than once during the race. So uh, it's difficult uh, as it is to imagine. Uh, I could see a 65-yard field goal. I mean, why not? It's only two more yards than uh, uh, what's two yards among friends, especially if we're in Mile High Stadium, you know. But 70 yards still seems to me like, I don't know, that that, that makes my leg ache just thinking about trying to do it. Yeah, but you see kickers during pregame warm-ups. Well, they do. Yeah, and yeah, they kickoff. do. You see them kicking through the goalposts. No, it's true. Okay, we've talked about the hits. Now let's talk a little bit about the misses. <laughs> oh, boy. Mason Crosby is in his 12th season with the Packers. He led the NFL in scoring. He's won a Super Bowl. He's a franchise's all-time leading scorer and once converted 23 consecutive field goal tries. But last weekend, he became just the second kicker in NFL history to miss four field goals and an extra point in a single game. That's 13 points Crosby left off the scoreboard enough to turn around a 31-23 defeat uh, in Detroit into a Packers victory. 
Ryan, you've been watching this game since all the kickers wore square-toed shoes. Including <laughs> me. And still goes straight on. <laughs> is kicking at this level more mental or physical? Oh, I think it is uh, more more mental, especially today. You know, most of these guys are very fit. Uh, uh, you know, again, as I talked about earlier, the improved technology and all of that, and the emphasis. I mean, back when guys like Gino Capaletti and Errol Mann were kicking uh, straight on, everything about kicking was more difficult. And look, your in steps wider than your toe, so uh, you know, you have a more of a hitting service. You generate more swing speed, soccer style, than you do head on, and you're practicing all the time, not playing wide receiver like Gino was doing. Uh, People forget that our old friend Jerry Kramer won the uh, Packers the 1962 NFL championship by kicking three field goals and an extra point and playing every snap at guard on offense. You know, I mean, imagine that today. So uh, uh, maybe all that downtime uh, makes the job easier, uh, I mean harder. You know, the fact that they got to sit there and think about it, the kickers today, maybe, maybe that mental side of it does get to them. Because I do think that, look, We've all seen them kick. We all know they're good enough to do uh, uh, make these kicks, as you say, from 70 yards on a, uh, when they're warming up. Then they get in the game, and the mental side takes over. It's why you miss the four-foot putt, Goose Man, even though you make it until I put that five bucks down in front of you. Then, boom, you go awry. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I never see a, a straight-on kicker have to hook the kick through the upright. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. He did not. <laughs> that is true. Okay. Blair Walsh was one of the league's premier kickers in Minnesota who seemingly lost it overnight. Dan Bailey was another Pro Bowl kicker who seemingly lost it overnight in Dallas. Yet we see Adam Vinatieri, your friend, still kicking with great success at the age of 45. You were around Vinatieri for 10 of his 23 seasons at New England. What made him special, and how did he become a survivor at a position that, that leads the league in coaching impatience? Well, I think it was a couple of things. First off, he was an athlete who kicked, not a kicker trying to be an athlete. Uh, I remember when he tackled Herschel Walker on a, uh, on a kickoff return, and Parcells was coaching the team at the time. He ran to him and said, you're no kicker. You're a football player. And I, and I think that was really true. Uh, second, you know, he was really obsessed with the job. He seldom talked about the things he had accomplished because he was always focusing on the next kick. And I think mentally he's a very strong guy. You know, he had to uh, go to Europe and play in Amsterdam and he got cut several times. I think that all uh, helped him. And we shouldn't forget that he comes from a pretty good uh, survivor stock. His great-great-grandfather Felix was General Custer's bandmaster at the Little Bighorn. He stayed alive. He missed the massacre. <laughs> and his third cousin is Evil Knievel, the daredevil motorcycle guy. So serious survival skills in that family. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay, it's said an NFL team doesn't appreciate a kicker until it doesn't have one. The average winning margin in this league is three points, a mere field goal. We know where kickers fit in the NFL pay scale, but where do kickers fit in the order of roster importance? Is a kicker a more valuable commodity than any of the 22 starters? Where do you put them in roster importance? Well, uh, uh, not at the bottom, that's for sure, like uh, they do at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but not at the top either. I mean, uh, they're, they're not as valuable as the quarterback or the pass rushers who are paid to knock quarterbacks over because without either of those kinds of players, the few field goals are going to get kicked because either you're punting every time or you're scoring touchdowns every time. Uh, but after that, you may have a strong point there. I mean, you'd have a hard time convincing Odell Beckham Jr. or Jalen Ramsey of this. Uh, but you're right. In a, in a game where the margin is almost always a field goal, that guy is a significant, significant uh, player. And, and certainly we saw that on both ends uh, last week. You know, the, the, there's no question about it. If you, if you have a bad kicker, you're going to have a bad season. It's as simple as that. 
Okay, Ron, in our State UK segment today, I'm going to delve into the contributor category for a guy who has done more to promote the NFL off the field than scores of players and coaches have done on the field to promote it. I'm talking about the late Steve Sable of the NFL Films. Ed Sable founded NFL Films, but his son Steve was the creative genius behind the enterprise. Ed put the NFL games on tape. Steve transformed those tapes from sport to art form. Ed now has a bust in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. His son Steve deserves one as well. Sable took over from his father at NFL Films in 1976 and invited football fans inside the helmet, inside the huddle, inside the locker room, and inside the game. In 2003, the Sables were awarded the Lifetime Achievement Emmy from the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences for, quote, revolutionizing the way America watches football and setting the standard in sports filmmaking. Steve Sable was an innovator. Ground-level cameras displayed the physicality and violence of the sport. The use of slow motion displayed the beauty and grace of the sport. NFL Films also was the first to wire coaches and players for sound, which brought fans from the stands onto the field. Sports Illustrated once labeled NFL Films, quote, the most effective propaganda organ in the history of corporate America. Atlanta Magazine wrote the Sables, quote, taught the average fan how to consume football, where to look, what to notice, when to exalt. Sable married football footage with the majestic sound of a full orchestra. In 1974, he wrote The Autumn Wind, which has become the anthem of the Oakland Raiders and Ron Borges. Exactly. NFL Films has since won in excess of 100 Emmys, and Steve won 35 himself for cinematography, directing, editing, producing, and writing. That unique sideline-to-sideline field, the locker room access brought football from the stadiums into homes. Viewers saw the players strain, sweat, and bleed. The images were vivid. In 2011, NFL Films received the Lamar Hunt Award for its, quote, positive impact on the game. Sable has been an annual candidate for consideration by the Hall Subcommittee for Contributor Nominations in the five-year history of the category. Says former Chiefs General Manager and longtime Sable friend Carl Peterson, quote, who else contributed more to the growth and popularity of the NFL in the game of football than Steve Sable? That's a question that needs to be addressed and answered by the Hall of Fame. And, Ron, next up we'll visit with Irv Eatman, who was selected to the all-time all-USFL team, and will be joining us to talk about that league and the new USFL book by Jeff Perlman, Football for a Buck. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back, and it's now time to discuss the coronation we witnessed Monday night when Drew Brees became the NFL's all-time leading passer with 72,000 yards and change. His TV and Twitter like the players, the GOAT. Brees passed Peyton Manning, who passed Brett Favre, who passed Dan Marino. Now, that's a lot of Hall of Fame talent stacked at the top of the NFL's passing board. So, Ron, are you ready to declare Breeze the greatest passer in NFL history? <laughs> he may not be the greatest passer in Saints history. Archie Manning, we love Archie Manning. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, look, a tremendous accomplishment. You know, he's 39 years old and he's still... Um, producing at uh, such a high level as, as he has most of his career. He's an undersized guy. I mean, it's tremendous what he's done. There's no doubt about that. But you look at these numbers, and, and it's, you know, it's like funny money. Uh, it's all 
well, I shouldn't say it's all, but so much of it is fueled by the changes in the rules and the changes in the style of play. I mean, Dan Marino retired in 1999. That's, uh, if I got my uh, math right, that's, uh, uh, what is it, 19 years ago. He's still fifth all-time with 61,361 passing yards. If Dan Marino was playing today, you'd have 161,361 passing yards. I mean, it's just Okay, well, that, that's crazy. the next question. With, with all the rules that favor the offense, how do we quantify all these yards? You know, once upon a time, Fran Tarkin, retired as the NFL's all-time leading passer with 47,000 yards. He now sits 11th on the list. And he faced far greater challenges than everyone ahead of him on that list. He played in an era when defenders could mug the quarterbacks and the receivers alike in the 60s and 70s. Johnny Unitas passed for 40,000 yards, and you know how I feel about Johnny U. So how are we to rank, rank and rate quarterbacks who play in the era of these artificial statistics? Well, I think that's a great problem. I think it's going to be a great problem for, for us as Hall of Fame voters going forward. I think it's going to be a great uh, problem for uh, anybody who really wants to and truly wants to understand the history of the game uh, because you know you're not they're not playing the same game I mean it's not even close I mean Johnny Unitas uh, you know he played a lot less uh, games per season he played uh, you know when they could punch you in the face you know five minutes after you threw the ball they could go into the huddle and punch you in the face and nobody would say anything you know I mean completely different game and as you point out and you see it reflected in all the uh, statistics today with uh, inflated statistics with receivers. Uh, Julian Edelman, you know, brave though he is and talented though he is, would not last one half of one game in the 1970s. You know, Jack Tatum would have decapitated him on one of those little shallow crosses, uh, and, and he wouldn't have been alone. Donnie Shell would have been lining up right behind him. You know, I mean, it's just... A, a different game, and I think it's really has thrown the record book out. And I don't know if they're going to come out with some sort of, you know, weird new uh, stat that I can't understand to try to balance these things out. But again, if you look, I mean, according to the way things stand right now, Eli Manning is the uh, is sixth in passing yardage. Who would you rather have? We're going to play in a playoff game tomorrow. Eli Manning, Fran Tarkington, or Johnny Unitas? I mean, you know, it's 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 crazy, and and also it was sort of incrementally, you know, uh, you know, Tarky then you know would pass Unitas, and you know, and there was now it's like an explosion. I mean, Johnny Unitas threw for uh, about forty, just over forty thousand passing yards. Drew Brees is going to throw for twice as many yards. Yeah, that tells you everything. See, and Brady's right there sitting at four with sixty-seven thousand. Yeah, all Brees has to do is is. Let Brady retire before he does, and, <laughs> and he's got got a good chance of holding on to these marks. Okay, that question. So, given that, who's the best pure passer you've ever seen? Wow, wow! I've seen so many guys. Uh, well, I'll I'll say two things. Uh, watching Joe Namath warm up, just watching him warm up, you never saw anybody throw a football more perfectly than Joe Namath. Having said that, for me, it was uh, it was Marino, and I saw him play a lot. Uh, you know, he was accurate. The thing came out of there in a hurry. Uh, everybody talks about you know uh, you know Brady not getting sacked. On no, Dan Marino got sacked, I think, fourteen times one season. You know, that ball came out in a hurry. He could throw it way down the field. He could throw it short. I mean, to me, he was the best pure passer I ever saw. And he had a tremendous arm. Now, I'm not saying he had the strongest arm. I saw some other guys with with stronger arms than him, although not by much. 
Yeah, I got the same two. I got I got Namath and I got Marino at the top of my list. Where do you put Elway? Where do you put Elway? Because that guy had a cannon. I don't too. know that he he had a cannon. I don't know that he's he's the best pure passer though. I, I no. think a, a guy who could sneak in there is Aaron Rodgers, who's got the cannon, who's got the touch, gets rid of the ball. I I think he'd be in discussion, but but there's a gap after Namath and Marino. Right. I mean, look, Unitas was tremendous. You know, you and I are old enough to have seen Unitas. That's the beauty of uh, not a lot of good things about getting older, but one thing is at least you've seen what you're talking about. Uh, you know, who was a more accurate thrower than John Unitas uh, and, and more intelligent player of the position than John Unitas? You know, the famous story about him uh, after the 58 championship game when he threw the pass to Jim Mutchlaller when they were well within field goal territory. Uh, and could have cost him the game if it was intercepted, of course. And after the game, uh, uh, young Dave Anderson, who just passed away this week, the great uh, New York Times columnist with the time was uh, working for a smaller paper, uh, asked him, weren't you, weren't you worried about that ball getting intercepted? And United snapped around and looked at him and said, Sonny, if you know what you're doing, you don't throw interceptions. Uh, so could you imagine if he was playing today with today's rules? I mean, I, I don't know how many yards he would pass for, but it would be ridiculous. He's a guy that also threw more interceptions than touchdown passes. Right, sure. Yeah, you know, because in those days, you know, you're throwing, as you know, Goose, you know, you're throwing a ball 30 yards down the field 10, you know, 10 or 12 times. You're not doing these, you know, shallow crosses where you throw. Last weekend, Brady passed for, I forget what it was, 334 yards or so. It might even have been more than that uh, against the Colts on Thursday night. He didn't throw two balls that went more than six yards. Yeah, yeah. I'm not blaming him for it. Well, that's it. I mean, he threw one, the 34-yard uh, touchdown pass, but he just threw it up. And the two guys didn't know how to play defense, and so Gordon, Gordon caught it. But, uh, but for the most part, these guys are throwing the ball five feet. It's, 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 it's really fascinating. Uh, I know you don't like it. I don't like it, the, the style of play today. But if you step back from it, it is fascinating, the, the, the changes we've seen. Okay, here's a million-dollar question. Drew Brees, all his good numbers. Does he make the all-decade team? Ooh. He Ooh. didn't win a Super Bowl. Right. Brady's Ooh. here. Rodgers won one. Manning went to two Super Bowls. Does Brees right. even make the all-decade team? He probably does not. He probably does not, which says a lot about a lot of things. I mean, because he's going to break the touchdown record, too. Yep. I mean, he's going to have them all. Uh but his ring collection is not going to be that good, which is not his fault. Uh, but you're right. He's not going to make the all-decade team. And he's going to throw. He could throw for 90,000 yards. I mean, if he hangs around at 5,000 yards a pop, well, not 90,000, but that's another tip. He could come pretty pretty close. He plays a few more years. He could have 85,000 passing yards. He can play two full decades and not make either all-decade team. <laughs> it, was, it was Brady and Manning in 2000, and I'm guessing Brady and, and my guess at this point, Rodgers, yeah. this decade. And there's going to be people, when, when his time comes, saying, Drew Brees, first ballot Hall of Famer. And you're going to say, wait a minute. He couldn't even make the all-decade team in two different decades. <laughs> you know, first ballot Hall of Famer, I don't know. I mean, first ballot numbers. But... Fran Tarkin, same situation. He didn't make an all-decade team in the two decades he played. But he had to, and he retired as the all-time leading passer, and he had to wait three years to get in. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I mean, you look at these numbers uh, of some of these guys. You know, Philip Rivers. Uh, uh, you know, Eli Manning, Roethlisberger. I mean, they're they're dwarfing some of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play. 
Uh, and so what that tells me is that the game has changed so much that it's perverted the, the record book. The record book doesn't – they almost need two record books, you know, one for when they were, defense was allowed and then one for when defense was outlawed. I mean, defensemen – uh, defensive players now, they're wearing ankle bracelets. I mean, right. <laughs> in handcuffs. You know, it's, it's, and I don't blame these guys. I'm not blaming Drew Brady. It's not his fault or, or Brady's fault. They didn't make the rules. You know, the, and, and, and the truth of the matter is, uh, Dan Marino or, or Johnny Unitas or, uh, Otto Graham or Sid Luckman or certainly slinging Sammy Baugh, if they were playing today, they'd take all the same advantages these guys are taking. There's no question about it. You know, Dan Fowlkes, people think he's one of the all-time great passers. He's behind Drew Bledsoe and Testaverde in yards. Right. That's right. I mean, it's just it's so out of whack. So, Mr. Baseball, you're saying we should put asterisks in the record book? <laughs> what are you saying? What are you I saying? Think, uh, I think asterisks would you, – you could certainly defend it, you know, or you just have separate pages, you know, pre-outlawing of defense and post-outlawing of defense, you know, because it's just – and I don't like it, you know, and, and I know that, that we've had people on the show say that uh, we had Troy Vincent on uh, a week ago. Now he's working for the league. I get it. But he said, you know, fans like points and they like all this. Do they? Real football fans, do they? You want, I mean, you want a competitive game. Yeah. I mean, and if right now it's all stacked for the quarterbacks. If you're a right. good quarterback, you should throw for 4,000 yards in a season. Right. And that's just a good quarterback. And Breeze has had five. 5,000-yard seasons. He's done some things other players have never done and may never do. But that's <laughs> I mean, what Sean Payton wants ball in the air, and Drew Brees is the right guy to go sign with him. I mean, now think about that, what you just said there. That's fantastic. Um, he's thrown, what, five 5,000-yard seasons, you said? Right. Dan Marino had one. There were, there were nine in history. Right. Dan Marino had one in 1984. That's 34 years ago he did it. So what would he do today? He had 48 touchdown passes that year too. What would he do today? Could you, if that's what he was doing, when they could kill you and beat up his receivers and and everything uh, that was going on in those days, what would he do today? Yeah, if you put Namath and Marino in today's game, uh, you wouldn't be calling Drew Brees the goat. No, <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't. And that's no knock on what Brees has accomplished. It's tremendous what he's accomplished, but it's it's a kind of a fictitious situation. Ron, the clock is ticking down, and we got to go. We're uh, going to break for commercial here. When we come back, we'll have Hall of Famer Mike Haynes. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. I want to welcome into our Talk of Fame Network studios today, Mike Haynes, who along with Lester Hayes formed what many consider to be the greatest cornerback tandem in NFL history back in the Super Bowl days of the Los Angeles Raiders. Mike was a nine-time Pro Bowl selection, an eight-time All-Pro selection, a member of the 1980s All-Decade team, the NFL's 75th anniversary team, and was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1997. He's here with us today to discuss what became an instant hot topic after a group of 20 or so Hall of Famers led by Eric Dickerson issued a a letter uh, some see as a demand for a $300,000 annual pension or as well as health insurance, or they would boycott future Hall of Fame uh, inductions, including next year's 100th anniversary. 
Mike was among the 20 or so names on that list, but I always know him as a, as a voice of reason in a league with sometimes devoid of it. So I wanted to give him a call and just see if we could sort this issue out. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you, Ryan. It's uh, always good to be talking with you, really. I read all those accolades for you. I got tired just reading them all. It was unbelievable. It's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten about some of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, the, first, the first thing about this letter that struck so many uh, was that these uh, the Hall of Famers team to be asking for this only for themselves, even though the letter did at one point say they wanted it to be a, sort of a template to eventually cover non-Hall of Famers. I know that bothered a lot of people. Uh, how did you see it, Mike, and, and, and how would you sort of explain what your intentions really are? Well, you know, I think um, what Eric wanted to do was to um, highlight the Hall of Famers, but realizing that you know our quest is really to help all retired players, uh, in particular the, the guys that played before 1993. Um, we, we don't all, all the players don't have the same type of benefit package going going forward, and I don't think the public knows that. Um, we don't have uh, health insurance. I don't think people know that as well. Um, they're pretty surprised to, to find out that all the Hall of Famers aren't millionaires. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, But they, what I think people forget is you know, the salaries have really skyrocketed over the years, and guys are living a long time. You know, I think maybe when, you know, there was a time when the average guy supposedly only lived to be like mid-50s. The guys are living a lot longer, and the guys who played when salaries were $20,000, or I can remember when I played with a guy named Bobby Howard at New England, who was a corner of my rookie year. He's on the other side, and he told me his signing bonus was a new Pontiac GTO. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And so, you know, I think those the GTOs in those days were going for like $3,500. Even a Mercedes-Benz was like five or $6,000. A beautiful home in, in Beverly Hills was probably $60,000. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So um, everything has changed, and all the pensions were all based on the money that the guys were making. So if they didn't make a lot of money, you can imagine what their pensions were. They didn't have a cost of living increase or inflationary uh, kick into it. And so, you know, every year, the longer they live, the, you know, the money goes down, down, down instead of going up. And so, so a, lot of, a lot of those kinds of issues that people aren't aware of, and um, I think a lot of the players, they don't like to talk about their financial issues. They have too much pride, and they get stuck. They get stuck in a place where it looks odd when they're, when they're um, talking about these kinds of things. But, um, the, you know, the, there's also guys who are played after the 90s who are doing great. Um, but, they're, you know, as a, Hall of Fame, as a Hall of Famer, I think um, most people are unaware that until recently there haven't really been any Hall of Fame programs. And, um, and you know, the, the thing that you get is to say that you're a Hall of Famer, to have a, a jacket, a ring, have a bust in Canton, uh, and, you know, if you don't need an agent, you know, a lot, you know, it doesn't make sense to have an agent, but maybe it does. And so um, a lot of guys in my era, we didn't have agents. So, we, you know, so if we're going to make any extra money being Hall of Famers, it was going to have to come from programs that either we started ourselves or the Hall of Fame started. And uh, the league continues to to use those players, um, to promote those players, compare today's players to retired players. You know, last night I watched um, Drew Brees become the all-time, you know, passing leader. 
and uh, you know, and he, he passed up two Hall of Fame. You know, one's a Hall of Famer, one's a future Hall of Famer for sure. Um, but all of those guys, when you compare them, you know, back to the guys that played in my era, they are they had different kinds of careers, um, you know, monetarily. And there's no nothing really uh, that that can happen. The, the league still uses their names to promote. Even these current players um, uses their images um, in, in uh, similar ways. Uh, and it's not it's not a bad thing. It's, you know, I'm not saying that the league is taking advantage of the guys. I just think that the guys really have kind of woken up uh, and realized, wow, you know, uh, it'd be great. They're still continuing to use our images, our brands. Wouldn't it be nice? If we could come up with some programs as well that the guys can use, the the, pro, the Hall of Fame can use to promote the game and to help communities, uh, help some of our retired players as well, um, and pay these guys a stipend, uh, and uh, and so. So it's really, I just don't think that uh, the story is out there. I don't think people really understand what's going on and it looks like a, a bunch of rich guys um, actually asking for more money, and that's not the case at all. Mike, there was some question whether that letter was ever intended to be released or, for that matter, even sent to the NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, NFL PA leader Demora Smith, and Hall of Fame President David Baker. How did it go public, and were you among those who later said they never agreed to, to either of the demands or even sending the letter? Well, no, I'm not one of the guys that um, said any of that, but I, I was surprised that the letter became public. Um, we had several phone calls with a lot of the guys that were mentioned in that letter uh, every weekend for, for a couple of weeks, and we talked about what was going to be in the letter, but we didn't get a ch- I didn't get a chance to see the letter before it went out, and I was shocked that it was public. You know, I really thought this was going to be something that was going to be handled quietly um, and talked about with the commissioner and DeMar Smith at the Players Association, and that we'd be able to, you know, have a nice, friendly conversation about it, but that, that didn't happen, uh, but I'm, I'm actually in some ways I'm glad that it is it turned out the way it did because you know now I'm talking to you guys about it and we're educating fans about it um, and and hopefully you know people will understand what the challenges are well Mike you know the uh, you know the NFL when it comes to money nothing stays quiet with those owners they yeah I know <laughs> they start yelling and screaming you know uh, you know one of the problems that that uh, I don't know if problems even the way but one of the things that bothered me about about it and, and I've talked to you about this right after it happened is that some of the guys who signed it including Eric frankly uh, were either strike breakers or members of, of a thing that was called the quarterback club that broke the back of the union's uh, effort in, to win their federal court, uh, their antitrust lawsuit during the 87 strike uh, when, the, when the league appealed. And those jersey sales uh, revenue was supposed to go to fund that, uh, the union's appeal uh, or to fight the league's appeal. Uh, and then the league, being smart, signed a ton of the top 20 or so quarterbacks and a few other stars like uh, uh, like Eric and I believe Lawrence Taylor as well. Uh, so in a way, it just seems to be contradictory to me that on the one hand, some of these guys are now saying they, they need these pensions and so forth or, or, or should be getting some compensation. Uh, yet 30 years ago, when the fight was on, they jumped the fence. Um, what do you sort of make of that? You've been involved in several of those strikes when you were a player. Well, I, I know know both those guys, and um, and I know a lot of those guys that were on that quarterback club, and um, I know that they would never do anything that they felt was going to be bad for all players. So I, I know I know um, Eric, and I've gotten to know him better since you know since our playing days. I know that he would never do anything to damage. Uh, an opportunity for all players. Uh, even uh, even this letter, we talked about it several several times. And, you know, guys were saying, "Well, we don't want to look like the Hall of Famers are not part of it." And he would remind them, "Guys, this is about all players. We're just going to start with the Hall of Famers." So, um, 
I, I, you know, I don't know what was going on back then, and if we, we definitely know that there was no social media. There was no way for the conversations to, you know, get across the country in a, in a short period of time. Uh, and you know, that would be a good question to to, to uh, ask of Eric and and uh, and Lawrence. But I, I'm. I just absolutely know that they would never, never do something that they felt was um, really um, selfish uh, and going to be something that would be great for them and bad for all other players. Mm-hmm. Mike, according to the league, if they agreed to the letter's demands, it would cost $40 million a year to pay the 100-plus living Hall of Famers such a salary and benefits. That comes in just about what Roger Goodell's salary is. <laughs> is that accidental math or a stroke of genius? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think there's any thought that was given to that. <laughs> I think there was. But, um, I think there was. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you hired me, I would have thought of it. <laughs> I thought that was the greatest thing going, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the union had long ago took the position that it doesn't represent former players, although it did negotiate some small pension increases, uh, including a, a fund for the pre-93 players uh, who have laughably small pensions uh, and few other benefits, in my opinion. Uh so where do you see the Hall of Famers uh, leverage in, in, in all of this since, since the union even comes out and basically says we don't represent you guys? Well, I, you know, I think it's, you know, basically it, it opens the door for a conversation, I think. And, um, and, you know, and so we're at least talking about it. I know that Eric has talked to uh, the commissioner. Um, I'm not sure if he has talked to Damar Smith yet. Last time I had spoken with him, he had not talked to him. Uh, but, you know, we're at least having conversations about it. There's a couple of Hall of Famers that are uh, working at the NFL office, and they are having conversations with the commissioner and, and owners about some of the things that um, they know um, uh, players are struggling with or need help with. And they seem to be pretty opt- you know, optimistic that we're going to be able to work something out. So I'm, I, I, you know, I just think that um, sometimes um, you have to you have to make some noise and let people know that things aren't going the way you'd like or the way you thought uh, or the way they could. And, um, and maybe that's what's happening now. Um, it, you know, instead of um, having owners saying, man, this is great. Our, our, the game has taken off. We're talking about building stadiums and, and having football around the world. Um, and, you know, and then they're, they're not taking time to look back at the guys who started or who had been associated with the game the longest and, and reaching back and trying to help those guys. Um, and I, I can understand that. I, sometimes I get tunnel vision, so uh, and you know, and my wife has to pull me back and tell me <laughs> something to get me back on track. So I get it, uh, and I'm just hoping that I'm just hoping that people get get the right idea of what's going on here and support what's happening. Mike, there's another group of former players that includes Ken Houston, John Riggins, Joe Delamalier, and Elvin Bethea, who have created a group called Fair fairness for athletes in retirement. They're seeking a pension parity for all former players, including roughly 4,000 pre-1993 players who qualify for pensions. Where does your group stand with them? We've had several conversations with them. Um, Joe has been uh, on several of our conversations and on several of our conversations. So have some of the other guys. Um, You know, as I said, you know, we start off with the idea we're going to help the Hall of Famers, but the, the whole idea is to help all the retired players. And I think um, having conversations with those guys um, helped me to see that we are going to have to be, you know, find a way to talk to all players because we don't want the guys, you know, the current, I mean, the retired players that think that the Hall of Famers are, you know, are doing things 
doing things without taking them into consideration because we are and we, we see it all as one and, and working together as one. So, um, you know, I think that the, it's been my, my thoughts all along that the Hall of Famers, if there is a pension, uh, that the Hall of Famers should make more than the, the general player. And I, and, I, and I used to use corporate America or the military as a, as a way of doing it. It's like you know, some people think because I played 10 years and they played 10 years, we should get the same. Um, and I just don't agree with that. You know, I, I feel like the guys who played most of the downs or who, who were the starters, they should, they should make more than the guys who were on the team to, if, if I got hurt. Well, Mike, we're just about out of time. I, I appreciate you coming here and, and also tackling what's a pretty sad issue. I mean, it's a $14 billion business. And you've got some of those, especially the pre-1993 players that are struggling to pay their mortgage or to find somebody to give them health insurance. So uh, thanks for enlightening us on the whole issue. Good luck on it. And uh, hopefully if you can squeeze a few bucks out of the commissioner, we'll have you back on and we can do a victory lap. <laughs> That'd be great. I would love to see you run a lap, Ron. Yeah, well, I'd be walking a lap. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> thanks, okay. Mike. All right. Okay, guys. That was Hall of Famer Mike Haynes. The Talk of Fame Network will be back after this timeout. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're back for, the, for our final two-minute drill of the day. If you're ready, Gooseman, that whistle's going to blow. That's the two-minute warning. Here we go. Browns are a 500 team after five games. That's damn near impossible statistical anomaly. Are they a football anomaly or the real deal? With all the young pieces, pieces the Browns have in place right now, it's time to get on that Cleveland bandwagon and not the Indians. <laughs> Cleveland has more wins already than the last two seasons combined. Should Hugh Jackson be a lock for coach of the year? No, but I wouldn't bet against GM John Dorsey as executive of the year. He's doubled the two-year total. Who else can do that? Odell Beckham Jr. complained about the Giants' passing offense last week, then caught eight passes for 113 yards and threw a 57-yard touchdown pass himself in a last-second loss to the Panthers. Is he a better passing option than struggling Eli Manning? Ron Manning did throw over 326 yards and a pair of touchdowns in the game. Beckham remains comic relief for this team. Jets running back Isaiah Crowell was fined for wiping his behind with a football after scoring a touchdown. Unbelievable. Uh, then signed an endorsement deal for a toilet paper substitute company that made the gesture a net profit. Has the world gone mad, or is Crowell a marketing genius? No, when corporate America rewards players for obscene gestures, the world has gone mad. Bill Belichick will have 10 days to prepare his defense for the arrival of the Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes on Sunday. Will he ask questions that Mahomes can't answer? Nobody might ask Travis Kelsey a question or two he can't answer. That's what Belichick does. Take away your best weapon. LeBron James was seen wearing a Colin Kaepernick sweatshirt last week. Is he supporting Kaepernick or Nike? What's good for Nike is good for LeBron. Steeler receiver Juju Smith-Schuster faked giving birth to a football Sunday, then rocked it like a baby after scoring a touchdown. What would Vince Lombardi say about that? Act like you've been there before. Four times since the Seahawks refused to give Marshawn Lynch the ball at the one-yard line in the Super Bowl, teams have made that ill-advised choice on first and goal and thrown. They're 0-4 with two picks. Are Lynch's teams not allowed to watch game tape? Run at the passing league. Live with the pass, die with the pass. That's the end of the game. We're not dead, but that's the end of our show. We'd like to thank our guest, Mike Ains. Jeff Perlman and Ed Bouchette for stopping by. Hopefully we'll have Clark out of bed and back at work next week. Until then, 
Stick with Rick and I on the Talk of Fame Network. <laughs> 